Welcome this morning. Thank you for joining us as we gather at Willow Park. And for those of you that have joined us online, the youth may go out and follow uh, Jonah and Katrina. Uh, you can see the one bobbing around is Katrina. Uh, she likes to bob. And, um, and we are blessed by her bobbing. I don't know where that came from and probably... <laughs> I'll get a few emails about that. Uh, but my name is Jordan Pilgrim, and I'm at um, jpilgrim at willowpartchurch.com. So, well, we're on our journey through uh, Daniel, uh, David's story, and um, it's been exciting and a real blessing. And I appreciate many of your comments, of course. Uh, uh, the story of David takes up 64 chapters of the Bible. So unless we're going to be here next May, we are not going to do the whole of the life of David. Uh, but we are picking up on key events and key moments in this great man's life of his roller coaster, of his life, of his journey, of his story, and how we connect in our own lives. But Remember, when you read the history of Israel, the purpose of the history is to address a crisis of faith to remind those in Babylon who have been taken into exile that God was faithful through the generations of the thousand years before with God's people under the covenant. And although they've lost the temple, although they've lost Israel, although they're in danger of losing their identity in the Babylonian world, the truth of the history is to say in broad brushstrokes, God is faithful and you can trust him obey him and serve him. Now, isn't that a message we need today for the church? Isn't that something that we need to be reminded in this day when people are opting out and not opting in? When people are choosing to drift rather than to be an individual that is drawn closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's so easy in a time of exile, it's so easy in a time of crisis, it's so easy when we feel completely discombobulated. I like that word. <laughs> completely discombobulated, and we're wondering what is going on, what is taking place, how can we move forward? What is the way? We know that Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 4 that there will be wars and rumors of wars, that we live with a constant shaking and earthquakes. We live with the birth pains, but, but take heart, take heart, because this world may pass away, but his word will never pass away, and Jesus will never pass away. And that he is your savior. He is our king. He is our Lord. We can trust the supernova event of all history, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. The most important event in history was the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the third day, he rose again. And we'll be celebrating that. We'll be celebrating that at Easter. And so we want to encourage you. To, um, to step into those podcasts. I've been listening to them, beautiful. 
And as you know, we love to release resources for you. There are resources on worry. There's resources on contemplating your way through COVID. In other words, finding peace in the middle of turmoil. There are resources on about how you can hear God's voice for yourself within your life. And now we have this new worship resource because... I do believe that this is a time when we as believers, each one of us, are not spoon-fed, but we learn to be self-feeders. We learn to grow. We learn in our intimacy with God, and we learn to grow in that journey. Uh, before I just step into the main thrust of this message, let me, yes, there is a break. So Pastor Glenn and I, on the 18th of March, are flying to... Um, Dar es Salaam, and then going to Mwanza in Africa, one of the largest uh, African cities. Um, and there we will be um, conducting meetings and different things. And, um, and Josiah and Jack, our sons, are coming with us. And so, um, so they're going to be like doing uh, children's missions, going into schools. They're going to be with an ev- another evangelist there and working. They're going to be running sports camps So they decided to do a bake sale for it. Now, you'll be pleased to know that they didn't bake it themselves. (laughs) There are a couple of lovely uh, ladies that have, uh, and and as I said in my little note, I did sample all that is out there, and I can report, praise the Lord, you will not be disappointed. So... So do uh, go and have a look at that. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. I've been to this desert. Uh, It is a stop-off point on any tour around Israel. I was hoping to be in Israel this August, and many of you were hoping to join. Uh, But it's been postponed another year to next autumn. But really walking in these places was so impactful in terms of imagining the landscape. Right there, Engedi is right by the kind of northern part of the Dead Sea. And as you drive up the Dead Sea, and on your right is, is Jordan, and, and what used to be Moab, and then you see the hills of Judah, the desert of Judah, and, and it moves, there are caves, there are... Uh, canyons. It is a rough and dangerous and very intense environment. It, it, is, it is there that you have to be hardy to be out in that environment. And then you arrive at the place where we're going to be talking about the cave at Engedi. And there you arrive and there's this little green spot that just appears in the wilderness with trees and palm trees and caves and waterfalls. It is the, one of the main spots for pilgrims and for different groups of, um, um, of children. I remember I arrived there and uh, Pastor Russ was preaching at that spot, and, but it was absolutely surrounded by school children. And I was trying to imagine, so I kept climbing up and climbing farther and climbing up until I got into a cave and nobody was around. And I sat in the cave and I thought, is this the cave? Is this it? You know? And it was very moving. It was very interesting to think that David, 
3,000 years ago, was hiding in the back of one of the caves here in Engedi, in the wilderness, being pursued by Saul and his men. And if you don't know the story, let me read part of the chapter to you. And after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men neared the crags of the wild goats. That sounds like good hunting country. The crag of the wild goats. I was up in, uh, in Okanagan Park and with an English person, uh, including myself, who's also English, and... And we were high up there, and we saw these white things moving up. And we went, what are those in the high crags? And the English person said, do you think they're like polar bears? And I was like, um, this is true, polar bears. I said, I've never seen a herd of polar bears moving through Kelowna. They were um, sheep horned, you know, those white chimp sheep horns, things, after we'd eliminated that there were a herd of uh, wolves. Uh, so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. What strikes me, first of all, is that Saul has got a problem in his land, and they're called the Philistines. And they are creating havoc. And problems, they are warring, they are fighting, and yet Saul's mind has become so obsessed that he's obsessing on one guy, David, and he cannot take his mind off this one guy. And he so takes 3,000 able young men to go and hunt him down. I mean, that's obsession. That is, this is almost crazy. Why would you take 3,000 young men to go, able men, to go and to hunt down one guy? Isn't it interesting that in our own lives and our own world, we can obsess about things that we should not obsess about? And we put our energies in one direction where we should keep the main thing the main thing. That has been a problem in the church in the last two years that so many believers have obsessed about small things or about things we have no control about or things that we can't influence. But where we should be obsessing about seeing revival in Canada. Where we should be obsessing about believing that the gospel is the hope of the world. Where we should be obsessing that even though kingdoms come and kingdoms fall and armies march, the kingdom of God and we have a job and our job is to obsess. Lord Jesus, let thy kingdom come. And sometimes we've got to look at ourselves and thinking, I'm thinking about this issue too much. It is not building me up. It is not edifying. I'm using my 3,000 men and resources on one issue when really the main battle is out there that could threaten the future of Israel. But so many of us, including myself, can get into a mental funk because... We get stuck 
So he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. I do not feel I need to exegete that for you. I think you understand the Hebrew in that moment. So we'll move on, but you go what's going on. And so, and of course the Hebrew is quite explicit. And David and his men were far back in the cave. Then the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemies into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Notice we have an introduction again of a robe. We've had three robes now. Robe number one was the robe that was ripped off Saul to say by Samuel that actually the kingdom's going to be taken away from him. That is the robe that he chose to wear of disobedience towards Yahweh. Then we see Jonathan handing over the robe to David, which is the robe of anointing and blessing and dressing him because he realizes that if Israel has a future, it is time for the next generation to come. It is time to follow what God is doing, not what man is doing. It is time to believe that if God has said that this is the anointed one, then Jonathan falls in line with the will of God and not the will of his family. And that's a challenge for every one of us. Because it's so, uh, so easy for us to lose perspective of what is the will of God in this situation? What is the heart of Christ in this situation? What does the Lord ask of me in this problem and in this difficulty? It's tough, isn't it? But we have to be willing. Now, you will notice that unusually for one Samuel, this chapter is unique because we are now going to enter the emotion of David. Because in the previous chapter that we looked at, when we, we examined uh, all that was taking place and all that was happening, I made the comment that, that it's, it's an emotional, emotional, chapter 18, emotional journey of, of the betrayal and double dealing and, and Saul uh, pinning David to the wall with a spear. But we never hear in those verses what David is truly feeling. We hear what Saul's daughters feel. We hear what Jonathan feels. We hear what Saul feels in his rage and his anguish, but we don't hear what David feels. But now the author opens the door and says, now I'm going to get you into the heart of the man of God that God was chosen, why God chose him. We're going to see now the window's going to be open, the moment's going to come, and you're going to meet the real man internally of knowing what is going on in his heart. It is complex, but it is also quite profound and quite beautiful. So we have the robe of of disobedience. We have the robe of the anointing of God upon the one God has chosen. And now we have this robe moment. And you can decide what you'd like to call this robe. But then the man said, this is his delivered you into his hands. 
And afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord anointed, or lay my hand on him. He is the anointed of the Lord. Let's pause and think. So, a prime opportunity. This is bookend between chapter 24 and chapter 26, where David gets two opportunities to assassinate golden opportunities, marvelous opportunities to assassinate his, his enemy, if you like. But he doesn't seem as the enemy. He has an opportunity to come. It seems from this scripture that Saul's network of spies are working rather well because they work out exactly where David is in Engedi. So it's working well. The network, the communication, those that are watching and having walked those hills, I tell you, if you wander across those hills, you will be noticed if you've seen because the landscape is so stark unless you get into a cave and hide. And then we discover Saul comes into the cave. And as he comes into the cave, this golden moment represents there in the back of the cave is David's men. And in the back of the cave is David. And David crawls forward and cuts the corner of the robe off. Now we don't know how this was done. Either first of all, it was while he was there that David did it while the robe was on Saul. Or the robe had been placed to the side and David crawled to cut it off there. And Saul didn't notice it. I imagine that probably it is that he got to the robe which was close to Saul at this moment. But you can decide for yourself. And as he did this, he cut it off, and we hear these amazing words. This is the day, the men said, that the Lord spoke, and when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. It seems that once he had done this, his conscience was pricked. He had an emotional response. He felt the dishonoring act of what he did. And then he came to the realization that if God was going to do anything, he was not the one to remove Saul, but God is sovereign. This may be providential, but it's not providential to kill him. It is providential to make the point that David's goal in his life is to only serve Yahweh, and he's not going to orchestrate his life. He's going to let the will of God guide him, the voice of God be with him, and the word of God be in him and through him. And so we have to think about this. Because there's a funny verse here. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand for you to deal with as you wish. Strong words. The Lord spoke. The problem is, you can't find the Lord speaking these verses anywhere else in Samuel. So we've got a problem. 
See, the Lord never spoke. He would give his enemy into his hand. The Lord spoke that David would become king. The Lord spoke that, that, that the Lord would be do this. The Lord spoke about the future, but never said, so what do we take from this? There's no oracle, there's no prophecy, there's nothing, but the men are saying, this is the word of the Lord, you must do this. This is the day the Lord spoke of when you said, this is your golden opportunity, this is your moment, this is it, it has come to you finally. And David is suddenly thrown into a decision mode, like the price is right. What am I going to do? I'm going to stop, I'm going to move, I'm going to go for the prize, I'm going to leave the prize. And the crowd is shaking, saying, move, move. I don't know if I've got the right game show up going on in my head because I don't watch game shows. But you get the idea. The crowd in the back of the cave are going, go on, kill him. The Lord says. But what is God saying? You see, it is a dangerous thing to say the Lord says. It is a dangerous thing. Is this prophetic? Is this God's voice? Is it what's going on here? Because so many people just look at the story of Waco and you experience that and you see how people can use and abuse and say the Lord says and disaster comes. A Jonestown. You see how people can use and abuse when people can hurt. People can hurt us even by saying, the Lord says. A prophetic word in the wrong moment, in the wrong way, cannot bring blessing, edification, and building up. A prophetic word can actually cause somebody to be crippled for many years of their spiritual life if it's given in the wrong spirit, if it's spoken in the wrong way, if it does not apply to New Testament principles of building up, edifying, and strengthening. It becomes a word that can actually hurt somebody, not build them up. And that's why the New Testament teaches that, first of all, any word that is given in prophecy needs to be in line only, only with the word of God and the truth of Scripture. And also it says that the word of God, it must be tested by a number of people when it is given directly. One must judge it always. And there have been a lot of prophetic over these years, and we have seen you know, strange moments, weird moments. But we must be honest. The New Testament says test. The New Testament says judge. And above all, in the life of David, David had them saying, the Lord has spoken. And had he? The Lord has given you this. This is the open door you need. Let me tell you something. An open door does not always mean you walk through it. Because our job is to hear the voice of the Lord in our lives. I've been given words from people. And some of these words and have been most glorious, beautiful, magnificent, edifying, encouraging, and wonderful. And I believe in the Spirit speaking to us through people who may have a gift of prophecy. I see that in the New Testament. I love that moment. When it is edifying, when it is building up, when it is given humbly, when it is 
through God's Spirit, when it comes to edify, it has had the most profound effect upon my life at that moment. But it's never been my driving force because it comes to What does it do? It comes to confirm what God is already speaking within my life. It comes to strengthen me what God is already speaking in my life. It comes as a reminder that God is speaking in hermeneutic of community. That God is with me. So should he kill him or should he save him? The Lord has spoken. So we have to be very aware that we are listening to God's voice. Let's jump forward to a couple of verses after chapter 9, to that verse after chapter 9, Al, if you don't mind, and we'll jump to uh, the first verse there. Maybe I'll jump it. Okay. Great. Oh, it's very exciting. Thessalonians. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecy with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. So the New Testament teaches us that when other voices are speaking to us, we've got to test them and hold on to what is good and encourage that. And that's good. I've had some funny words given to me. At a big conference, I was invited up onto a stage once when I was a young man. And, and, and the word of the Lord was that I would become a mime artist and I would travel all over Europe. Hallelujah. And I went, no, Lord. <laughs> Paint my face white. Perhaps you think I missed my calling. Walk backwards. Get stuck in boxes. Wear a hat. You're not laughing as much as I thought you would. <laughs> Which kind of suggests that you go, mm, that could have worked, Phil. You're quite expressive. That's not a bad word. No, I was not going to be painting my face white and wandering around the streets of Paris. Thank you. Although that sounds quite good at the moment. But it, was, it made me laugh. I held it. But maybe, yeah, creativity has been part of my life. And so I took it as creativity. And I was able to perhaps test it. And look at it and understand the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See, what is going on in David's heart now is does he listen to the shouts from the back of the cave or does the Spirit of God testify in his heart? And what I believe every believer needs to develop is an ability to listen to the whisper of God that never disagrees with the doctrine of Scripture. That you have the whisper of God, and he comes. The Hebrew word for whisper is silence. That's weird, isn't it? It's not weird, because you've got to be silent to hear the whisper of God. You've got to be silent. And the problem with many of us is that we've lost the ability to be still and silent, so we're not hearing the whisper of God. And so God wants to be whisper. He wants to come. He wants to come like to Elijah. He doesn't come spectacularly. He doesn't come with the fire and the earthquake and the windstorm. He comes in the whisper. 
And I want to remind you that when we talk about prophets, we're not in the Old Testament now, we're in the New Testament. And my rule is, if it looks like and smells like an Old Testament prophet, then I've got to be wary. Because New Testament prophets are in the local church, are part of local elderships, they walk in a way of humility, they submit themselves to the body of Christ, and they edify, build up, encourage. But ultimately, it comes down to this, children of God. What is God's Spirit saying to you? And this is exciting, because I love it that I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that when I read scripture, scripture ignites like a firestorm. That when I'm spending time in the presence of God, he whispers me things that are remarkable. And then he does bring signs that make me wonder. He does bring people that say words that encourage you. go, whoa, that's weird. I always remember when we were praying about coming to Kelowna. I went out and we hadn't told anybody. We were just like, oh, this is really weird. Going to Kelowna. Where is Kelowna? And I thought, Lord, please work. Oh. And we like, every night we're praying and praying, Michelle and I. And, um, and then we went out for some dinner with some friends. And, and they sat across, all great friends from us. And we were at a nice Italian restaurant. And, uh, and, and, and the girl said, uh, so where, you know how couples think. Like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Have you ever been out with couples and they've asked you that question? I hate that. Um, where do you see yourself? I'm like, oh, I don't want to lie because I might be going for an interview for a church in Canada. So I said, oh, maybe, you know, in the next 10 years, Canada? And she looks at me and goes, what? Kelowna? I went, I went, ah, (laughs) why Kelowna? Oh, she said, it's the only Canadian city I know. I had a friend that moved out there and went to work for the uh, government and uh, then got saved at a place called Evangel doing uh, an alpha course. That's the only town I know, Kelowna. Now, I did not move my whole family on the strength of that moment. (laughs) Just because it's the only Canadian town she knows. But it was a little moment of going, whoa, that's weird. That's a little sign to make me wonder. Because, but I know that actually it's to do with so much more. It's to do with scripture. It's to do with testing. It's to do with judging. And it's to do with the inner voice within our lives. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. Is that fantastic? That we have such a unique relationship with God that God does drop sideways thoughts into our lives. But beware the echo chamber of the cave. Because people can tell you what to do 
and people may have right motives, and people think this is a golden opportunity where David can take the throne, but David heard the voice, he was conscience-stricken, and he said no. And in fact, the scripture says, he sharply rebuked his men. And sometimes when words come that are not correct in our brains, in the cave of our hearts, there are some messages that we tell ourselves that are not in line with love, are not in line with forgiveness, are not in line with grace, are not in line, but they are murderous. And we need to rebuke those words and say, no, I walk the way of God's love. Because in some way, this story is like the cave of our own complexity of our heart. Your life and my life is like a cave. And in the back, there's those little screaming flesh that are saying, do it, do it. And in the front, there's the opportunity. But then do I listen to what the principles of Yahweh are? Do I listen to God and to God's way? And Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your enemy. Matthew chapter 7, verse 40. And so making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And this is where we have to balance. Does he make the most of every opportunity? Or does he instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So David is navigating something pretty profound and he decides to make the decision to trust God. To follow his convictions, not his men. And to submit to God. That is our story for our lives. Trust God. Keep to your biblical convictions. And submit to God's word. What is going on in David's heart in his cave? What God is doing in his cave, God is teaching him about his character. His character has been developed. And there's immense devotion in this passage. And I've ran through it. And maybe if we could jump back to verse 5 of this text we're looking at. Having had a little foray into uh, biblical of God's voice speaking in our lives. If at this moment we can understand that, that in our own journey, in our own walk, in our own lives, that God is so interested in our character. And this is why I think David regretted this moment. And this is, this is a robe of misjudgment because he did it and he was conscience stricken because the inner voice spoke to me. He knew, I went a little bit too far here because you know what the robe represents. The robe represents authority and power in the ancient world. And I overstepped my mark and I am sorry. And he walks out and as, as Saul walks away, having left the cave, popped his robe back on, no doubt, walks down the way and I've watched the ledges in Engedi and it drops and drops and drops and drops and there's like six or seven waterfalls. You can see David standing there and crying out, my father, my Lord. He's not just in that, he's on his face. 
And then he begins his narrative. I am not trying to kill you. Look, if I was, I could have done. He waves the robe. I want to honor what you are. I want to honor you. I will not get rid of your ancestors and your generations to come. I will not be that person because I honor you even in your position. Even though you're trying to kill me, you are my father. And the Lord's anointed one, he actually says, God has put you there. And until God removes you, he's saying, I will be of good character and I will serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So often, we allow bad character to inform our decisions rather than Christ's character. He was cut to his... David was conscience-stricken. And that's a good thing. Because David was devoted... He was developing into the man of God he was meant to be. And he's not portraying the heart of Saul, which is desperate and lost. Let me give you a word to sum this chapter up in David's journey. Reverence. David is learning to revere the Lord. And be reverent towards God. And our goal has to be our devotion and our reverence towards God, our Lord. That God will do it. He fears God more than he fears his men. He fears Saul. He fears God first. And when I use the word fear the Lord... This is not something horrible like a rattlesnake in your room, which is not a good thing to have. That would create fear. It is the awe of the glory of God and seeing the universe and the beauty of Niagara Falls, the beauty of Victoria Falls, the beauty of Angel Falls, all in one fall. And looking at it and going, I am in awe. And I want to do the will of God rather than the will and the opinion of men. I serve for the king's bidding. So what's going on in your cave? Are you listening to the men with good, loud voices? Are you listening to your ambition? Are you listening to your fear? Or are you submitting all of your ways to the Lord? What a challenge. So much. I mean, I could spend hours on, on this. Beautiful. But let's finish off by reading. He said to the men, the Lord forbid thee that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men. And did not allow them to attack Saul. What thoughts do you need to sharply rebuke in the cave of your life? What needs to be broken? What lies? It's time to sharply rebuke and renew our minds.
And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down prostrate before him with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming And like most problems in life, Saul's problems of jealousy, anger, rage, insecurity is rooted in the lies that people have sown into his heart. And we have to break the lies, live freely, and be lovers of Jesus. Whatever that means for you, may the Spirit speak to you and guide you. Let's stand together. Maybe even right now as we finish, there are lies and battles that you're facing. There are voices echoing in your cave and there's a battle going on. If that's you, I'd love to pray for you, for peace in your own cave. Maybe hold out your hands for a moment as a sign of receiving you're comfortable to do that. Father, so many of us are responding and saying there are issues, there are battles, there are lies and voices that are echoing in our lives. And so, Lord, we sharply declare that Jesus is Lord over these lies and we rebuke them in the name of Jesus and we declare the goodness and the grace and the love of God that we will love our enemies and we will bless those who curse us and we will pray for those who persecute us and we will not listen any voice except the spirit of truth, the word of God, and the word of the spirit in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to discern and to honor others and to bless those even who are unjust towards us and are wrong towards us. We release them from all offense. We release our offense and we say, Lord, no man can rob us of any of our future, only ourselves. And we declare we submit to Yahweh. We submit to Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, for being with us and guiding us in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. To seal the moment, if you've got your communion, Relish the moment of remembering Jesus and his death because we go from David to the true son of David, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, who came to eradicate the tyranny and the lies of sin 
the power of darkness and came to bring freedom. The body of Christ, broken for you, eat it in remembrance of him. The blood of Jesus that takes away the sins of the world. The blood of Jesus that defeats darkness itself. The blood of Jesus that defeated death. And the blood of Jesus that makes you clean and accepted.